Welcome. You are listening to the Fat and Furious podcast. In this podcast series, your host, Steve Bennett, father of seven, best-selling author and adventurer, will be joined by 23 of the world's most forward-thinking medical professionals, doctors, authors, and top nutritionists, where he'll share the truth behind living healthier and happier for longer. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Peter Bruckner. Peter Bruckner in 2010 was appointed uh, head of medical uh, at Liverpool FC. He's also worked with the Australian cricket team and also the Australian football team. Now, he's a big advocate of the low carb diet, and especially the low carb diet in terms of sport and sport performance. Uh, he also has a not-for-profit arm called Sugar by Heart. Peter, thank yeah, you for sure. joining us. Um, now, lots of people will know you because you're pretty famous in the sports world, but a lot of our, uh, people listening to our podcasts are, uh, you know, just Joe Bloggs in the UK that wants to get healthy, that may be a little bit overweight, that uh, is fed up of all that nonsense advice uh, that, that we're receiving around what we should be eating from our government and so on. But before we jump into the sports world, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, and then throughout the hour, I'll just see some of the things we'll talk about. I'd like to find out some stories about sports people and what they eat. I'd like to know a little bit more about your, your charity, which I believe is about cutting down sugar in Australia. So I want to find out more about your charity. I want to hear some stories, but let's start off with telling everybody a little bit about your own story. Okay, well, um, I'm an Australian, obviously, um, and uh, born and bred in Melbourne, which is a uh, lovely city, and uh, that's where I'm speaking from tonight. Um, I've had a, a couple of stints in the UK, um, and uh, but um, I basically went to school and, and university in Melbourne, graduated as a doctor, uh, then came out to England to uh, to practice on the Poms for a few years. So uh, I did three years in uh, in London in my uh, sort of around the age of 30, 30 uh, late twenties, and uh, loved that. Uh, loved uh, living in London, and I'd work for twelve months and then go off and travel for you know three or four months until the money ran out, and then come back and work again. And uh, it was a great uh, a great three years. Um, came back to Melbourne then. Um, always fascinated by sport. Sport was always my interest, my obsession. Um, you know, I sort of uh, always read the back page of the paper before the uh, before the front page. And in fact, I always thought when I was younger that I'd know when I'd finally grown up is when I started to read the front page first, but it uh, hasn't happened yet. But <laughs> one day, man. Um, so sport was always my interest and uh, I was at average sort of sport. It wasn't particularly good. I was okay at lots of sports and played lots of sports. But it became pretty clear to me, uh, you know, that I certainly wasn't going to represent Australia in uh, cricket or uh, any other sort of sport, but uh, played a lot of sport. Um, and so everyone sort of assumed that I'd want to go into sports medicine. And um, when, I, when I became a doctor, and sports medicine didn't really exist when I sort of got back to Australia. And um, so I started off in general practice, but more and more of my general practice became sport. So uh, I took the plunge and uh, opened up a sports medicine clinic and uh, away I went. And... Had a, had a great time. The, success, the clinic went really well. We had lots of doctors and physiotherapists and massage therapists, podiatrists, psychologists, nutritionists, all that sort of stuff. 
And uh, then I also worked with a bunch of teams, um, professional sporting teams in Australia, uh, Aussie rules teams and uh, so on. And then a bunch of national sporting teams, our, uh, our Australian uh, hockey team, swimming, athletics, uh, soccer and cricket, so five, uh, five teams. Um, so uh, along the way, we did a couple of Olympics, uh, Atlanta Olympics and Sydney Olympics with the athletics team. Um, did quite a lot of media work in uh, in sport, um, and then uh, then I took on the job as the doctor of the Australian soccer team. We we call them the Socceroos, and uh, went through a World Cup qualification with them, and went to the World Cup in South Africa in 2010. And from there, I went straight to Liverpool, and I'd been appointed the head of sports medicine and sports science at Liverpool. So Is I went that, there. When you say Liverpool, you're talking rowing or basketball or oh, football. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Liverpool! Apparently, uh, apparently they have a football team. Yeah, and, uh, but in those days, wasn't much good. But now it's pretty good. So uh, that's right. Um, yeah. So I had a fascinating couple of years at Liverpool. Crazy time at Liverpool. You know, they were changing owners and changing managers and changing coaches. And anyway, 2010 to 2012. Um, so, uh, then, and then um, after I left Liverpool, I worked with the Australian cricket team for uh, for five years. Um, did 51 tests in a row and lots of tours and, you know, lots of time on the road. And uh, finished up with them a couple of years ago, uh, well before their little indiscretions in uh, in South Africa, which uh, you may have heard of in England. Um, <laughs> they were naughty boys. And, um, they actually made the front of the newspaper as well as the back of the newspaper. Yeah, well, well, you always have to have a quick look at the front because if it's a really big sporting story, it'll be on the front, but then you flip it over. Um, and... Um, yeah, so uh, they were clearly missing my moral guidance uh, when I left. But, um, uh, so the last couple of years I've, I've been focusing on, on public health issues. So I guess my life really sort of changed uh, towards the end of my time at Liverpool. And um, if you sort of asked me then, you know, was I healthy, I, I'd have probably said, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm fine, I'm fine. But the reality was I wasn't particularly healthy. I was quite overweight, uh, borderline obese. Um, like many sort of middle-aged men, I was 60 at the time, sort of, you know, like many middle-aged men, and, and I consider 60 middle-aged, I used to think it was very old, but now I think it's middle-aged. Um, yeah, I'd probably put on, you know, half a kilogram a year, pound a year for, for 30 years, you know, to the point where I'm probably 15 kilograms overweight, uh, BMI of 30, you know, in the obese range and so on. And, you know, my kids are starting to poke me in the, in the guts and say, you know, come on, Dad, you know, what about it? And I'd say, well, I'm on a, I'm on a good diet. I'm on a low-fat diet. I, I, you know, uh, um, I exercise regularly. You know, it's not my fault. And um, I also had a bunch of other uh, medical issues. I had a thing called a fatty liver. I had high triglycerides, high insulin. So I, I was clearly pre-diabetic, you know. And, and my father had developed type 2 diabetes at uh, – um, around the same age, and I clearly didn't want to go down that uh, that track, you know, didn't, uh, I saw what happened to him. So around about that time, I started, um, I started hearing, uh, you know, a few sort of people challenging the idea that maybe fat was the, was the problem with our diet, and people suggesting uh, that maybe it was sugar and carbohydrates that were, were the issue, in particular Tim Noakes, who uh, any of your listeners would, uh, would know, I'm sure. And Tim is an old friend of mine from the sports medicine world. We've known each other for 30 years and uh, always have plenty of, plenty of banter about cricket and rugby in the South Africa and Australia and so on. And, um, and Tim sort of had come out and said, you know, he thought that we'd been wrong, that, that, uh, that low fat, you know, was, uh, was not the way to go. And, and he'd, 
he'd reduced his carbs and it made an enormous difference to his health. And, and to be honest, if it had been anyone else saying it, I'd have ignored it and said, you know, they're crazy. But uh, because Tim, super smart guy, probably the smartest guy I know, I think, and he'd been proven right. He'd challenged a few other things in sports science and he'd always been proven right. So I thought, no, I need to look into this. You know, this is, this is uh, very interesting. So I read a book by Gary Taubes, I'm sure also many of your listeners would know, called Good Calories, Bad Calories, or The Diet Delusion, I think it was called in the UK. That's right. And this this book just blew me away. I mean, because it not only sort of talked about the relative merits of carbs and, and fats, but talked about the politics, about how sort of the low-fat movement had won, out, won the political war against the low-sugar movement back in the, in the sort of 60s and 70s which I'd always assumed was on the basis of good science, but uh, very naively. Uh, but uh, it turned out it was more about politics and money and ego and, and power and so on. So this book just blew me away. I remember you know, putting it down at night thinking, no, nah, this couldn't be wrong. Like, you know, we couldn't have got this wrong. The whole of the Western you know, world has been on this low-fat diet for 30 years, and, and here's this guy suggesting there's no evidence for it. And I found it really disturbing. So I then plunged into everything I could possibly get my hands on. I read, you know, 30 books and hundreds of articles. And I just, and the more I read, the more, more worried about I got and the more disturbed I got. And I thought, no, this, this couldn't be right. Like we, we couldn't possibly have stuffed this up. So I thought, okay, well, it's time for a bit of research, you know. Now, uh, you know, I'm a scientist, I'm a doctor, you know, we like to do research. But we also know that research within N equals 1 is a waste of time, but uh, yeah. except when the 1 is yourself. So in which case... <laughs> Very important. So I decided it was time for an N equals one experiment. Not particularly scientifically valid, but pretty important to me. So I decided I would do three months of a low-carb, healthy-fat diet. So took all my, did all my blood tests on day one, got into this diet, no sugar, no starches, no rice, no pasta, no potato, no bread, cereals, um, no vegetable oils, no processed foods, basically. Um and the only fruit that I had was berries, uh, green veg, meat, fish. And so so oh, I went back to eating probably the way that my grandparents had eaten. You know, lots of sure. meat, fish, eggs. You know, eggs have been demonised for 30, all that cholesterol and so on, and uh, dairy, full-fat dairy, threw away all the low-fat stuff, and went back to, you know, threw away the margarine, went back to butter and, and so on. And um, as I said, the only fruit, berries, green uh, nuts, olive oil, and uh, that was it. So I did this for three months. So uh, lots of things happened. The first thing that happened was I stopped being hungry. So instead of, you know, I would normally get up and have my cereal in the morning and then, you know, get to about 10 o'clock in the morning and think, God, it must be lunchtime soon, I'm starving. You know, I'd have my bacon and eggs or an avocado or whatever for breakfast and I wouldn't be hungry all day. So I went from eating three meals and three snacks a day to probably eating two meals a day. And I still eat two meals a day now. If I got hungry during the day, I'd have a some nuts or some cheese or something, but basically I just have two meals a day. Then I start to lose weight. Every week I'd jump on the scales and I'd, you know, I thought the first week I, you know, just you know, fluid or, you know, beginner's luck and so on, but I just kept losing weight. And the more fat I ate, the more fat I lost. It was just bizarre. And then I had, I had so much more energy. I concentrated better. I slept better. I stopped snoring, you know, that was a very popular move. Happy wife, happy life. Um, <laughs> In fact, your, and, friend, your friend Tim Noakes said exactly the same. He, he said, uh, yeah. he said I was noticing all the symptoms when I stopped eating the carbs. He said, but the thing that made my, my life the best was I stopped snoring. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I've always been a big snorer. And uh, so um, 
Yes, and, and my energy and my exercise tolerance improved. You know, I remember being on the treadmill once, you know, during that period and thinking I could run forever, you know, and I sort of never had that feeling before. Um, so at the end of that three months, uh, I'd lost 13 kilograms in 13 weeks. Wow. Being hungry, eating really well, enjoying every meal, eating lovely, you know, meat and fish and dairy and, and eggs and things. Um, all my medical issues resolved. My fatty liver that I'd had for at least 10 years completely resolved. Uh, my insulin went down to normal. My triglycerides normalized. Everything normalized. Um, the one negative was I needed a new wardrobe because I'd lost uh, so much weight. But uh, I figured that was a small price to pay. So, And isn't that so, fascinating? Because you must have, in those sort of 20 years, you ran national sports teams. You're around Liverpool FC where there must be... Uh, the choice of food, uh, you know, think everybody thinking they're eating healthily anyway. Your options must have always yep. been, you know, a quality of bad quality, I guess. But it was just the wrong food. Yeah, yeah. I always thought I was doing the right thing, you know, and uh, you know, lots of pasta and rice and, and and bread and you know all the things that we were encouraged to uh, to eat. And uh, does, so, that you, you know, this, does that make you uh, angry at all? Furious at no, all? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. really angry and, and very disillusioned with, with science, with medicine, with, with my profession. Um, uh, but, you know, in a way, you sort of can't blame doctors because we get no nutrition training at all. I didn't have a single lecture on nutrition in my, in my medical course and things haven't improved much. So as doctors, you know, we stay, and we all do, we stay in our comfort zone. And our comfort zone is, is drugs and surgery and so on. And, and we don't know anything about nutrition or exercise. or, or So... You can see why uh, we don't go down that track because you just if you don't know about something you don't uh, don't go with it. So so yeah, at the end of that, I, I you know if I needed any more convincing, then I certainly yeah you know was was convinced and um, and I guess since then I've I've tried to do everything I can to uh, to spread that spread that word. You know, I guess when you when you discover something that that you think is very important, you know, you've got two choices. You can either just sort of keep it to yourself and say, "Oh, well, you know, lucky me," you know, I, I know what's going to keep me healthy. But you, so, I, I sort of felt really duty bound to sort of go out there and try and, you know, just tell the world about this this stuff, you know. Yeah. And uh, I mean, not as if I invented it, but you know, I, I discovered it for myself, and and I wanted to tell as many people as possible. And in this place, you want to be last yeah. seven years. That's exactly what I'm trying to do with the podcast, Peter. I'm, I was the same as you. I slowly got more and more obese. And yeah, you know, I, I'd run marathons. I'd trek to the North Pole. I'd done loads of crazy sports things. And uh, and I was fat. And it was only when so, exactly the same as yourself, borderline diabetic. And then somebody said, well, you, you're eating all the wrong stuff. You know, you, you, why are you avoiding fat? Why are you eating cereals? Why are you, you know, eating, you know, baked potatoes every night? I mean, because that's what I'm told to eat. And uh so my new my new book and this podcast series is called Fat and Furious because I spent all my adult life overweight and I'm furious because actually it's so simple that once you learn what you've learned and what I've learned is you want to spread the word because it actually isn't yeah. difficult once you once you know the truth. No, huh? that's right. And tell me about everyone. You know, everyone is right. Yeah. Tell me about some of the sports stories then because I've been, I've been listening to some of your. Well, first of all, I saw you speak at the PHC last year with your Liverpool scarf around, which was, was fascinating. <laughs> and uh, one of my highlights that from that, uh, which I wrote in my recent book, was uh, you told me about that one state in America, uh, the, the real rice growers growing grain rice, 
uh, got so annoyed because cauliflower rice was uh, becoming so popular and, and turning people's illnesses around using cauliflower rice that they actually banned it being called rice at all. <laughs> so yeah. I remember you saying that. But tell me some of the uh, stories then, because I know you've helped quite a lot of sports people now change their diets. Well, you know, I mean, sports people have, have, have probably had the worst diets of anyone. I mean, they've, you know, they've they've been so carbohydrate centric, if you like. You know, I mean, all the you know the pasta parties and the uh, and the sports drinks, you know, Gatorade and Powerade and Lucozade, and, and I mean, in a way, they've they've almost had the worst diets of anyone. The massive amounts of sugars and and, and you know, simple carbohydrates in particular, and gels and bars and and, and so on. Um, so you know, I really worry about the long term effect that that's you know that will have had on their on their health. We've had a whole generation of sports people who have been massive carbohydrate uh, you know intake. So um, so that's you know that's a concern just from a general health point of view. But the reason you know we've, we've all been pushing, and I was as guilty as anyone, was been pushing carbohydrates uh, because we thought that was the best source of uh, or the only source of energy for uh, for someone who's doing uh, doing exercise and. Um, I think you know it's become pretty evident that uh, there is a very realistic alternative to that, and that's uh, and that's fat or ketone bodies. And uh, you know the great advantage of that is that is that you've got an unlimited supply of that because you've got lots of body fat. You know, even the skinniest person has enough body fat to fuel them for hours. And uh, and one of the problems with athletes, of course, is having to refuel the whole time. You know, you run a marathon or you run an Ironman or something like that. You're constantly having to replenish your carbohydrate supply because you you run out and you know you famously hit the wall in a in a marathon I'm sure you know many people uh, could relate to that. So the great advantage of fueling yourself from fat is that you don't hit the wall. You know, you know it's a very constant sort of a source of a uh, fuel. So so more and more athletes I guess over the last uh, few years have been uh, switching from a high carbohydrate diet to a to a low carb sort of higher fat diet and, and basically using ketones or keto, you know, ketogenic diet or keto diet, using ketones as their as their fuel source. Um, we, we've got two fuel sources. You know, we've got sugar or glucose or, uh, or fats and ketone bodies. And the body will always use glucose preferentially uh, because the body perceives glucose as a danger, high amounts of glucose in the blood as a danger. So works to move it out of the blood into the uh, into the uh, the muscles and so on, but if the glucose is not there in your blood, the body will switch to to fats and to ketone bodies, and 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 they're also a very effective fuel. The only area probably where carbohydrates are better are would be in high intensity exercise. Some people, uh, a lot of people, when they're on a keto diet, can struggle with high intensity exercise. So. You know, I, I have see a lot of, say, people like cyclists or runners who say, yeah, I'm good, you know, all the time, but, you know, if I just need to sprint or climb or something like that, I just feel as though I need a few carbohydrates. So um, people have been playing around now for the last years with, uh, you know, with uh, different diets and different amounts of carbohydrates or challenging what's, what we've been doing for the last, you know, 50 years, really. Yeah, really, really interesting, isn't it? Do you think that some of those high intensity ones, it's just that because it, because it, I guess the carbs hit faster, that just in a few instances, then there's still maybe a need for it. But, um, but having said that, Tim Noakes just done some research and put a white paper out talking about well, that's not really high, 
H-I-I-T, but you were saying that on, on, a, on a five kilometer run, there was no difference on those having carbs or high fat, that the, it almost made no difference what the diet was to the outcome of the speed. Yeah, look, I think by and large, that's the case. You know, I think uh, maybe at a very elite level, you know, at a, a very high intensity, there might. But again, I think it's a lot of uh, a, a lot of conditioning and what you're used to and uh, and what you expect and so on. So, you know, I think the vast majority of certainly all recreational athletes and all ultra endurance athletes are absolutely fine on, on ketogenic diets. So there's uh, no problems on, on low carb there. Um, it just may be. So... I know a lot of the uh, the football teams now and, and elite sporting teams around the world are sort of doing a bit of a a mixture of the of the doing this train low, compete high. So during the week they'll they'll be very low in carbohydrates and maximise their fat oxidation. And then maybe on match day they'll just top up with a few carbs just to give them that extra sort of energy burst and so on. So, but it's very individual. You know, I think there's a right amount of carbs for every person, and uh, and so it's a little bit of trial and error really that uh, some people maybe need a few more than uh, than others. But by and large, you know, we certainly don't need the massive amount of carbs that uh, that people have been eating all this uh, all this time. So. Absolutely. You know, I've had uh, had some good uh, good experience. The, the interesting thing with a lot of the, the, one of the amazing things about athletes is that, despite you know training as much as they do, so many athletes are a little bit overweight. You know, they might be two or three kilograms overweight, and uh, despite you know training all day and, and so on, and and that's largely because of this uh, this diet uh, that they've all been uh, been on. And uh, it's amazing how often you'll get uh, when you switch athletes from. Uh, basically a carbohydrate diet to a, to more of a fat uh, oxidation, that they'll lose these two or three kilograms, and um, which they've never been able to lose. They'll, uh, they don't lose any muscle mass. It's just fat they lose. So their power to weight ratio improves. And uh, they significantly improve their, uh, their performance. So uh, it, it's fascinating. And, uh, you know, those who've tried it find it, uh, you know, have a lot of success with it. So, yeah, we, we did a lot of uh, work with that with the Aussie cricket team, you know, a number of them, you know, uh, were surprisingly, you know, struggling with their weight. And, um, you know, they were able to much better control their, uh, their weight by, uh, by reducing their, uh, their carbohydrate intake and, uh, you know, without any effect on their... Uh, on their endurance or anything like that. So it's really uh, talk, talk a surprise. Cricket. Sorry, Peter. Talking talk the cricket team, there was a great story. I can't remember which interview I saw you talking about, one that had a knee problem and, and reducing carbs. Could you share with my listeners that story? Yeah, sure, yeah. We're, uh, it was, uh, we're actually in India, and uh, it was just after I lost all my weight. And um, one of our players, uh, he was sort of in the squad but not in the team, and then he had a lot of knee pain, and uh, he'd really struggled. He'd actually had to stop playing uh, a year or two before, uh, before I met him. And um, he'd been there. No one could work out what was going on with him. And eventually uh, he saw a, a specialist in, in Sydney, I think, and who, who felt he had a, an unusual form of arthritis, what we call seronegative arthritis, which is basically like rheumatoid arthritis, very similar. And uh, put him on some pretty powerful drugs, um, methotrexate and prednisolone initially, which are quite strong. Uh, that helped him a little bit, uh, but not completely. And then they put him on a, a fairly new, very expensive, powerful, uh, powerful drug uh, that reduces or improves immunity. And um, when I met him, he was on that drug. He was able to train, not fully, but uh, you know, enough to be able to play. The coaches thought he was lazy because he just couldn't do, you know, couldn't train uh, fully. 
And um, when I met him, he was injecting himself with this drug, Enbrel, uh, which was perfectly, you know, legal and so on. I'm not uh, suggesting it wasn't, but he was injecting himself with that drug every every two weeks. And he said to me at about 10 or 11, day 10 or 11 of the fortnight, he would start to get an ache in his knee and he'd know it was time to, in, to have his injection and he'd inject it and he'd be then good for a couple of weeks. He was another one of these athletes who was a little bit overweight. So he came to me and said, look, I've you know, seen it, you know, how, how much weight you've lost, Doc, you know, and I'd like you to lose. You know, I reckon I've got uh, three or four kilograms that I should lose. I'd like you to, to try your, your diet, as he called it. And, um, and basically said, sure. So uh, he went on to a low-carb you know, healthy fat uh, diet, which uh, in India, as we were at the time, it's not the easiest thing to do, you know, no rice and no naan and all those lovely things. But anyway, he was, he was very, uh, very committed to it, very strict, and went strictly low carb and, uh, and so on. And um, three weeks later, he came to me and said, uh, Doc, I forgot to take my drug last week. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I didn't get any pain in my knee, so I forgot to take it. Do you think I should take it now? And I pretended that was exactly what I expected. You know, of course, yes, you know, I knew that would happen. Um, but uh, not. But um, I said, no, no, why don't you just wait and see what uh, what happens? Anyway, no more drugs. Um, Stop taking the drug. The drug costs 50, about 8,000 pounds a year wow. uh, to the taxpayer. So one of those really expensive, high-powered, newish drugs. And uh, he went completely off that. He was able to increase his training. A year later, he'd gone from being outside the team. A year later, he's one of the top 10 batsmen in the world. And um, he's been, been pretty good ever since. So and that really that, sort of opened, uh, opened my eyes to, yeah. to the fact that, that inflammation, basically he had inflammation. And we now understand more and more that inflammation seems to be that, that the core of just about every disease, this chronic low-grade inflammation that uh, even is you know, atherosclerosis and, and even mental, mental health and, and so many things seem to be due to chronic inflammation. And uh, that really opened my eyes to the fact that diet can really affect inflammation. And um, it seems that sugars and uh, processed foods, vegetable oils, and in a lot of people, grains are the things that uh, that cause inflammation. And um, I've had a lot of success in the last few years reducing people's inflammatory conditions, whether they be arthritis or uh, tendonitis or uh, uh, all sorts of different things, uh, chronic pain even. Um, you know, there's a feeling that infertility might be due to chronic low-grade inflammation. As I mentioned, depression and anxiety have had very good results looking at uh, ketogenic diet, again, because of inflammation. So inflammation has become a really big factor in, in medicine. And, uh, and while diet is not the only, the only thing that affects inflammation, we know that you know, sedentary behavior and, and smoking and alcohol and, and uh, um, lack of sun and stress and, and lots of things that, that cause inflammation, nearly all of which are in our control, um, it, it seems that diet is a, is a very big factor in, uh, in inflammation. And, uh, and so, you know, we, the, reducing the carbohydrates and sugars and the vegetable oils, you know, is, is really putting people on an anti-inflammatory diet. And, uh, and rather than having to take drugs, you can solve your inflammatory issues with, with diet. So, so that was a real eye-opener for me. I mean, I, it blew me away. I mean, I, you know, I pretend that I, I expected it to happen, but I certainly didn't. And, um, and, and ever since then, I've really been fascinated by this whole link between inflammation and diet. 
Yeah, no, the, I mean, the, the more and more, um, you mentioned some great names, Gary Torbs, who I've spoken to, and, and uh, uh, Tim recently. And you see that all the things you just mentioned, like sunshine, stress, not drinking too much, obviously not smoking, uh, are all really important. But the one they all seem to keep coming back to, almost as like the pivotal point, is this inflammation and a real strong link between too much carbs, inflammation, and then driving so many different illnesses. Yeah. And a, a big obviously yeah. to insulin as well. Um, you mentioned something a moment ago, you know, because we always see these sports stars, they always look super, super fit. But one question I've got is that our football players, and tell me about when you were at Liverpool, they go and have that sort of, in fact, it's not two months anymore, it's much shorter in the summer, but, you know, they, they go and have their, 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 their summer break. So they've been carb loading all the time. They're training really heavily, and then all of a sudden they're, they're they're chilling out for a month. Is it a battle then to get them back into the fitness at the beginning of a season? And if they went low carb, would that help? Well, look, I think there are always some people who come back. You know, they've uh, they're a little bit uh, thick around the waist, certainly, uh, and you can you can tell that pretty quickly. Usually, uh, a by looking at them and b looking at the first run they do, and uh, <laughs> they're way behind everyone else. But look, to be honest, I think that's changing a lot. I mean, I think footballers and all sports people are becoming far more professional. You know, the old days of you know getting out on the booze and and, and you know eating whatever they like and and uh, and so on. They, they, that's changing, and uh, as sport becomes more and more professional. Um, I think the athletes become more and more dedicated. And, and so you'll find now that most footballers, when they do go off on their summer break, they'll keep, uh, they'll keep training. Even the cricketers, you know, I mean, traditionally, you know, cricketers uh, didn't worry too much about fitness. But uh, now if you, you know, if you go in the off season, they'll all be in the gym and, uh, and running pretty hard and so on. Just because uh, the demands of the sport, uh, you know, mean that's, that's necessary. So I think there's been a real change in that, in that, uh, that area. Um, certainly, I mean, if you, if you are low carb, it's much easier to sort of keep yourself in, uh, in shape. And there's, uh, you don't put on the weight that you do if, uh, if you stop exercising and you're, um, and, and you're eating lots of carbs. So much easier in that regard. But also for the athlete, there are lots of other advantages to, um, to being on a, on a low carb, healthy fat diet. I mean, I, I mentioned the, the, the issue before about not having to refuel constantly. So, uh, you don't have to keep chugging down drinks and, and gels and so on when you're, when you're on a long run. I think also you recover a lot better. Um, so it's probably related to this inflammation factor that, uh, you know, that soreness you get after, uh, after exercise is, is significantly reduced when you uh, reduce those foods that cause inflammation. And, and particular, that's particularly important, you know, you really don't have much recovery time. You know, you've got to play on Sunday and then front up again on Wednesday night or whatever. And uh, so every thing you can do to, to improve that recovery, you know, you have your ice bars and your, you know, everything else that you, you do and so on. But uh, food has is, is now become a really important part of, uh, of recovery. So, um, yeah, look, you know, I think it's a really uh, fascinating area. We're learning more and more about the role of, uh, of diet in, uh, in, in all sorts of issues, in, in chronic disease. In, uh, so it's, it's, it's it's an exciting time, I think. You know, uh, every day something else is coming out and uh, showing that uh, diet can can affect you know our health in some way. Yeah, and you said something a moment ago, Peter. You said that you know you're concerned for sports people, and uh, and, and Tim Noakes says the same. He said because we keep thinking about and my approach was because I was fat. Let's not be about the bush. I was obese, but Tim's concern is more that. A lot of athletes that were toffee, you know, thin on the outside, fat on the inside, 
they look great because they're doing lots of exercise because they're doing lots of sports, but actually all that inflammation is still going on in the inside, you know, the fatty livers and, uh, and the fat around the organs because they are bloating all the time. And, and they probably might not realize they've got a problem to the end of the career when then all of a sudden the weight just piles on because they're carrying on you know, that, that same diet. But the, the problem was probably there all along. Yeah, you know, we always laughed, you know, don't we? We, you know, we see footballers a few years after their retirement and they've got a nice pot belly and we, you know, we, we wink and nudge and say, you know, they've been in a good paddock and, uh, and so on. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's uh, when, you, when you're having a huge amount of carbs, you've got to exercise a lot to keep your, uh, your weight under control. Whereas, uh, you know, if, if, you're, uh, if you're on a low-carb, uh, you know, healthy fat diet, that's not, a, not an issue. So it's much more sustainable in, in many ways. And, uh, um, you know, it's, it's a lifestyle, not a, not a diet. You know, you don't have to sort of diet to me is sort of something temporary. So I don't, I don't like using the word diet. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. to me, it's just a way of living. You know, this is this is the way we we choose to live, and, it, and it's you know so much healthier than uh, than the, the other way. So. And you said uh, earlier on as well that you know medical score, because the same in Australia, same in the UK, same in America. You know, hardly any days and time spent on nutrition. <laughs> Uh, is that something we should all be lo- lobbying our governments to change in medical schools that we start looking at prevention rather than cure or, or at least... Well, I think that the whole medical system is, is is wrong, you know, I mean, in all of our countries, you know, I mean, we, we don't have a health system, we have an ill health system. And then basically we, we sit around and we allow people to eat rubbish and, and, and sit in their bums and not exercise. And then we wait till they get sick, you know, and then uh, we, you know, they come into our surgeon and we say, you know, come on in, you know, come on in. I, you know, I've got things for you. I've got drugs and, you know, I've got my surgery friends around the corner and things like that. So, and it, it's just not sustainable. I mean, it's not financially sustainable. You know, the NHS in your country, the Medicare system in my country, the American health system. I mean, it can't afford to treat all these chronic diseases that we're, uh, so the only hope for the future of medicine is prevention. And we know that the majority of these chronic diseases that take up all of the doctor's time are preventable by improving lifestyle. The two key things are diet and exercise. And if we get the diet and exercise right, we're going to solve the majority, not all obviously, but the majority of our chronic medical problems. And uh, yeah, we can... The NHS will be able to afford to treat the people who do get sick instead of uh, the situation they're in at the moment. And, and you know, the cost of medicine is bankrupting countries. You know, it becomes so expensive to, you know, because we're all living longer. But the, the last 12, 15 years of our lives are all blighted by chronic disease that, uh, that, call, you know, that take up a lot of uh, money and time and, and so on. So I think it's the only solution. And yet... Yeah we're so wedded to this idea of, of, of treating illness. Uh, it's a, it's a whole sort of paradigm shift. That's, that's very difficult because doctors, as I said, doctors are trained to treat disease. We're not trained to prevent disease. Mm-hmm. So we'll keep treating disease because that's what we're good at. That's why you spent, you know, six years in medical school learning and all those years training in the hospitals. We're, we're, we're good at it, but uh, you know, surely it's much better to, uh, and it always fascinates me that, you know, when, when people have a heart attack, you know, they, they, change, they change everything. You know, they'll, they'll change their diet and they start exercising and so on, but why do they wait till they have a heart attack? And half the people yeah. don't even survive a heart attack, you know, and yeah. why don't people, you know, make the change before they have that heart attack and so on? So I really think uh, we've got to change our whole, our whole thinking that's got to be driven by uh, a combination of, of government, of, of the medical profession. The medical profession have got to acknowledge that, you know, this is – 
the current system is not working and we need to change. So um, yeah. that's what we're trying to do. Doesn't say change. Come nicely to uh, your 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 charity or not for profit, uh, Sugar by Half. Tell us what the intention was. I think the name says it very yeah. well. But tell us yeah, what. Yeah, well, it sums it up pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, yeah, a couple of years ago, a bunch of us were sitting around and and. And just talking about our frustrations, really, in, the, in that, uh, you know, the message wasn't getting out there. And we felt one of the reasons was the message was confused, you know, that people were confused about what they should be eating. There seem to be so many diets out there. There's paleo and Mediterranean and low-carb and Atkins and, you know, God knows what else, you know. And, and, and so many people were saying to me, look, you know, we're just confused. You know, for years we thought we knew what we should be eating and now we're, we're totally confused. And I sort of thought, I had a thought, well, Let's just try and simplify things, you know, rather than sort of arguing until the cows come home about, you know, this fat or that fat or whatever. I mean, I thought let's focus on one thing at a time. And uh, the obvious thing is sugar because that's the one thing that everyone agrees on. I mean, even the dietitians agree on uh, that sugar is not a good thing. And, you know, in, in, in our, you know, Western society, you know, we're probably having 16, 18, 20 spoon, teaspoons of added sugar a day. You know, which is way, way too, uh, too much. You know, the World Health Organization recommends a maximum of six. You know, so we're way over the uh, the level, and teenagers are having even more. You know, so uh, so I just thought, well, let's you know, let's try and reduce sugar as a starting point. It's not the only problem, but if we got that right, we'd make a pretty big impact. So I also think that campaign should have a target. So I thought, well, let's go with half. You know, World Health Organization says six teaspoons. We're having 14, 16, you know, mass was never my strong point, but, you know, it's about <laughs> half. Um, and, uh, and so we're, we've, you know, we've started this, uh, this campaign, um, awareness, you know, because a lot of the problem is people don't realise where sugar is, you know, that, that sugar is in virtually every processed food and things that have been, you know, we always thought were healthy, you know, things like yogurts and, and, and muesli bars and, and all these sort of things that, you know, we, we've all, and, and orange juice and you know, things that for years we thought, well, we're being healthy when we have these things and they're just full of sugar. So part of what we're trying to do is raise awareness. Um, we have a, a national campaign that we're hoping to roll out. Uh, we have an, edu- uh, an education program that we're, we've, we've started putting into schools this, uh, this past uh, semester and that's having a great, uh, great uh, take-up by teachers and so on. Um, we've got a, a program that we're rolling out early next year in, in community sporting team clubs and so on to try and get sporting canteens to be healthier, to, to stop having, you know, sugar snacks at halftime and, and, and healthy rewards. You know, you, if, you're, if you're the best player on, on the pitch, you don't get your McDonald's voucher. You know, you get a, you know, a voucher to go to the local recreational centre or something like this. So, so just try and change that whole sort of uh, paradigm. So, and, uh, and, you know, we're also tackling, trying to tackle the diabetes issue as well and so on. So, because that's really, a, uh, you know, one of the massive problems in our society. I mean, diabetes is, is the major chronic disease in, in our societies. And um, contrary to what everyone says, it's, it's actually reversible. As, you know, as David Unwin and others have shown, that uh, the low-carb diet in many, many cases can reverse type 2 diabetes. So, so there's some of our messages. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to push that as much as we can. We've got a great group of people working on it to, uh, in Australia, and uh, similar to what the PHC and so on are doing in the in the UK, and uh, getting out there with the ambassadors in the community and spreading the spreading the word, because this, I really think you know this is the most important single public health issue in the world. 
is is diet. And uh, you know, we're getting fatter and sicker every year. We're getting more obese. There's more type two diabetes, more chronic disease. And people say, well, you know, well, what's changed? And the thing that's changed is is our diets. And uh, there's more and more sugar and processed foods in our diet. So our message is really. Reduce your sugar, eat real food rather than processed food. That you know, if you had to have one line, you know, just just go home, open the pantry, throw away all the stuff in in packages and, and cans and so on, and replace it with real food. And you know, that'll be the single best thing you can do for your family. That's that's great advice. And, and talking of your family, you know, you were saying earlier they used to prod you. Come on, Dad, you're a sports doctor. You're you're, you're you know you advise Liverpool FC and you're overweight. Have your family taken to your changes? Yeah, well, they would. You know, they would all sort of. Uh, you know, they tease me about uh, about my uh, my devotion to the cult, as they call it. But um, you know, interestingly, they they all eat a lot better than they they used to. And, and I've got a you know, and I did a terrible job of feeding my children. I have to say, I look back and I think, my God, you know, it's a wonder any of them survived uh, their, their childhood, to be honest, the, the rubbish I used to, to feed them. But, uh, but, but, un- un- but unintentionally, in fact, with a good intention. I, I, mean, I, 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 I thought I was, I thought I was doing the right thing. Yeah, I wrote an article the other day. I've got seven kids and, uh, and you yeah. know, I, I've always, always tried to look after my kids, as all parents do. But, you know, I'm very yeah. conscientious. I buy them apple juice, orange juice for breakfast, the cereals that said they were healthy with all these vitamins added. Uh, and, and now, you know, two, two of my elder children are battling their weight constantly. They've got it down well now, but, it, you know, I think I've damaged their metabolism over, you know, their growing up years. And, and that's why I'm furious because I thought I were doing the, wrong, the right things and I'm sure you were the same. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I had one uh, one of my my children, my youngest, uh, actually got quite obese by the age of about eleven or twelve, and uh, and he, not surprisingly, like his father, loved sport, and, and he just couldn't do it. I mean, he was you know it was so frustrating, and he actually put himself on a he took himself off all junk food and, and started to eat nothing to do with me. I'd love to take the credit, but then lost a whole lot of weight and finished up being a top athlete. And uh, I should have realised that at the time, but we're we're very. Where did you know? As doctors, you know, we, we we tend to sort of believe everything we're taught in medical school, and uh, and, and and as someone, someone said, I think Tim might have said this actually that you know, fifty percent of everything we we're taught in medical school turns out to be wrong. We just have to work out which fifty percent, and and I had the wrong fifty percent for a long time. And um, so I've got a got a grandchild now, and he's uh, I can assure you he's eating very uh, very healthily indeed. So uh, <laughs> hopefully he'll do a lot better. <laughs> trying to make up for my sins of the past. <laughs> well, there would, there would only be a sin if you knew you were doing the wrong thing. Yeah. Somebody said to me, oh, if you... If you no, said, no. Yeah, well, somebody said to me the other day, they said, uh, Steve, if most of these chronic illnesses are because of what we're eating, then are we all committing suicide? I said, well, it's only suicide if you know what you're eating is wrong. So, you know, what you're trying to do and all the people you mentioned, Tim and David Unwin, are trying to do is to educate people. Then if they choose to carry on eating carbs, then, then, then maybe it is self-harm. Yeah. Yep. Um, yep. I've got one more question going back to the famous cricketer that you helped. So here he was. He was on tour in India with non bread city and rice everywhere. And, and, and to change his health, you were, you were advocating that he stopped eating the non breads and the rice and started eating more fats. And he did it and he became healthy and his knee pain went away. What about the rest of the team? Did that influence their food choices? 
Yeah, I think a lot of them got uh, got on board. They saw uh, people losing weight, and uh, um, you know, Davy Warner is another one who uh, you know I know nobody in England likes Davy Warner, but he's he's actually a really nice guy. But uh, but you know, I don't know if you remember, but when he first came on the scene, he was quite a pudgy sort of a uh, guy, and uh, he completely turned around his, uh, his his fitness, and he's now absolutely ripped and, and probably the, the lowest uh, you know body fat of anyone in the team, and 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 the you know, almost the best athlete in the team now, and uh, so he uh, he he had a dramatic uh, impact on his uh, on his body shape and 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 his uh, you know his ability as well and uh, so on. So um, yeah, there there was a lot of interest uh, in it. Uh, some of them, you know, I mean, most young people, you know, can get away with eating pretty much what they like. You know, when they're young, it's only later on it catches up with them. But um, yeah, quite a number of them uh, embraced the uh, the low carb uh, concept. Uh, Shane Watson was another one who he was someone who always battled with his with his weight, and uh, the only way he could he loved food, and the only way he could keep his weight under control was by starving himself, and that would make him miserable. And and he just battled it for years and years, and uh, and he was quite angry at the end because he you know, discovered low carb and discovered he could actually eat really well and and, and maintain his uh, you know keep his weight right and. and and he, you know, he used to say to me, Doc, all those years, you know, I've suffered. And so, you know, where were you? And I said, well, I wouldn't have been much use to you then because <laughs> I didn't know it either. So, uh, yeah, we uh, we were both on a journey of discovery that uh, made a huge difference to uh, to him. And uh, he was able to, you know, eat enough and eat well and enjoy his food and, not to, and still keep his weight under control and have good energy levels. So, uh, yeah, he was, uh, <laughs> he was really annoyed. <laughs> Oh, that's a fascinating story. And, it, it, you know, it's just amazing, isn't it, that so many of us got it so wrong for so, so long. Let's, let's change the tack a little bit because we are in the UK and we love our cricket, probably not as much as you do in Australia, probably because normally we beat us. Um, let's talk about football because that's the, the main passion here. Give us some stories sure. about or a story about Liverpool for the football fans that are, that are watching right now. And, of course, at the moment they're doing very well. They are, they are. It's it's fantastic to see. And uh, oh, look, you know, it, it obviously it's a, an amazing club and, and an amazing tradition and, and an amazing city. I love my time in Liverpool. I love the city of Liverpool. It's a great, uh, great city. And uh, you know, any city has two passions of football and the Beatles. You know, it can't be a bad place, really. Can it? You know, so uh, I was very lucky. And and I guess you know one of the things you 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 know you. Constantly, you need to remind yourself when you're when you're working. You know, you're lucky enough to be working with these these amazing athletes. It's except, you know, how how privileged you are to be able to work with, you know, the, the best athletes in the world. You know, I mean, uh, you know, we had Steven Gerrard and Luis Suarez, for instance, there. You know, and and I mean, you, you know, you, people had paid just to go and watch them train. You know, it was. Uh, I mean, you felt so privileged to be able to uh, to to be there. And, and Stevie, you know, is exactly as he seems, a lovely guy. You know, fame hasn't changed him. He still hangs around with the same mates he grew up with. He's just a down-to-earth, genuinely nice person, you know, uh, and uh, I don't think everything he's done has, has changed, uh, you know, changed him as a person and he's someone I, I really warmed to and admired the, the, the whole time. Luis Suarez is a fascinating character. I mean, to you know, to all intents and purposes, he's this sort of animal on the pitch and, uh, you know, with these... His intensity and and his you know um, rugged play, I guess, and then he's kept you know his uh, 
tendency to want to bite people and, and so on. And, and so, you you know, I remember when he first came, he he'd already was under suspension then for biting someone when he was playing for Ajax in, in, in Holland. And we thought, oh, God, this guy, you know, he's going to come and he's going to be this sort of animal guy, uh, you know, it's going to be difficult to deal with. And he arrived and he was just the nicest, gentlest, quiet, family sort of guy, just walk around with his cup of, you know, Uruguayan tea that he always was drinking and always had a smile on his face, was always friendly and so on. And you think, you know, how could this person, you know, be the same person who's, you know, out on the ground, you know, kicking the crap out of people and, uh, <laughs> and biting people and so on. And, uh, and it was even a training, like people would hate to play against him at training because he was just so intense and he'd make no excuse. He said, look, you know, you train the way you're, uh, you play and, uh, he was just classic white line fever. I mean, you know, he was a different person as soon as he crossed that white line and uh, I was glad he was on our side, not on the, not on the others. But you could not meet, a, a you know, a, a lovelier guy, uh, off, a gentler guy off, off the field. So, you know, it just shows you that the, the perception we have of people can be so wrong, you know, in some uh, in some cases. And, uh, and you know, um, once you get to know people, uh, they're, they're, you know, athletes are the same as everyone else. They have the same... Yeah issues, the same insecurities, the same problems with families and, you know, all sorts of things as as the rest of us do. You know, they just happen to be incredibly good at something and get paid a ridiculous amount of money. But yeah. <laughs> underneath it all, you know, they're, they're people and, and they have injuries and they have insecurities and they have issues the same as everyone else. And uh, I think what you learn is that, you know, you treat them as, as normal people and, uh, yeah. and, and try to develop relationships with, with them and, uh yeah, I'm you know, this was very fortunate to to work with lots of uh, lots of great athletes and uh, you know it's, most it's of whom have been great people. It's interesting you talked about uh, Suarez. I uh, cycled uh, last year with the ex England uh, rugby captain Lewis Moody, and uh, you know he he'd got a reputation you know on the pitch for uh, in rugby of being an absolute animal. But I cycled with him, and he was the loveliest giant I've ever met in my in my entire life. And we, we took these 25 dis- disadvantaged children all the way around the, the out cycling. And, uh, and, uh, and, and Lewis, we, we, we got talking and he started talking about diet and uh, I'm always struggling, always having to starve myself. And I, I, went, Look. I told him about the low carb and he just didn't believe it, just did not yeah. believe it. And, uh, and it's interesting yeah. that, that you know, they apply themselves so much in their sport that I think when they get to know the truth, they've just got to do what you did, which said, look, I'm – the evidence is there, or there's certainly people like Tim saying it works. You've got to try it for a bit. So I think sports people, because they can apply themselves so well, if they at least give it a go, certainly post-professional career, it's amazing because they can apply themselves that they can probably turn them, you know, their lives around. Mm. Yeah, let's hope so anyway. Yeah. yeah. Look, it's been absolutely fabulous, fabulous talking to you. Uh, I'm going to ask you the same final two questions that I ask uh, all doctors and professors that, that, that come on and uh, some have the most uh, interesting answers uh, and some have some really bizarre ones. First thing is, um, let's start with the simpler question. What is Peter's top three or four things for helping people live healthier and happier for longer? Eat real food rather than processed food. Uh, exercise res- regularly. And have fun. Have fun. That's a great one. And, and the final one, which does bring out some strange answers, uh, what would you like your legacy to be? Um, 
I'd hope that people would think that uh, I was able to be a force for good, that I was able to help change the way people ate and that uh, that had a significant impact on their health. And that's what I intend to spend the rest of my time, hopefully quite a few more years, doing. Well, it's really interesting you've, you've said that because Lee's just handed me a piece of paper said, just ask Peter, what are you doing now? And I think that's exactly what you've just done. You're spending your time now. Uh, rather than just trying to fix people up, uh, you know, trying to put them on the right path and uh, trying to do a bit more prevention rather than cure. I tell you what, we, we talked about uh, earlier on. I, just, I know that was supposed to be the last question, but that's just we've, we've not touched on this one yet. So we both kind of want to change what people are taught at medical school. What's your government's guidelines in Australia on what food we should be eating? Because in the UK, we have this crazy eat well guideline. In America, they've got that crazy pyramid. Is it as bad in Australia? Yep, yep, yeah, it is. I mean, they're, they're pretty good on sugar. You know, they, 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 they agree that sugar is not, not a good thing, but they don't understand carbohydrates. They, don't, uh, they still think that you can have as many starches and, uh, and so on and uh, that you're fine. And there's still this lack of understanding of saturated fat and uh, different fats and so on. So, yeah, look, we're in a pretty similar situation to uh, to the US and the UK. Um, and it's one of our frustrations because, you know, doctors who don't understand nutrition will then just revert back to, well, well that's the guidelines. And they assume that the guidelines are based on, on science and, and, and largely they're not. You know, the, the last time they reviewed the guidelines, they, uh, they deliberately chose not to, uh, to review saturated fat because uh, they said, oh, nothing's changed. Whereas, you know, there was, I think at that stage, about five systematic reviews uh, out already. But, uh, you know, you, they, they don't want to change. Uh, and, and obviously there are a lot of people in the, in the dietetic world and the nutrition world who, who don't want things to change because, you know, they've... Uh, They've got, you know, they've developed their reputation and their practice around a certain paradigm, and 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 they don't want that to be challenged. And uh, and I can understand that. I mean, if you, you know, you've been telling someone for thirty years one particular thing, and then some you know, wacko buddy sports doctors come along and say, you know, you're actually wrong, and uh, and you know, you've everything you've been telling people is is wrong, and you know, put the, turn the pyramid upside down. I mean, of course, you know, you, their response is going to be, uh, you know, aggressive, defensive, and uh, and then try and defend their. Uh, and what they want to do. So uh, is that, you know, we just have to keep working away. And, uh, yeah. People defending their corner, Peter, is that just like with Tim uh, in South Africa, has that caused you any criticism from people that are trying to protect their, their views? Or Oh, look, you know, I haven't, uh, <laughs> not quite as bad as <clears throat> Tim's, uh, Tim suffered and, uh, and no one deserved to go, what, uh, to go through what, what he did. Um, <clears throat> But no, look. There's a lot of people here who are uh, quite critical of, of me, and, and you know, think I've uh, I've lost my marbles. And, uh, and they might be right, but uh, on this case, I'm I'm right on this one. So um, <clears throat> it is interesting, though. You know that, that when you get a chance to talk to people, and you can get up in front of people, and uh, even you know, general practitioners who are you know pretty sceptical and uh, reluctant to embrace new ideas. You know, I. I speak to, to groups, you know, like some large groups of general practitioners, and 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 by and large, they they embrace it, you know, because we're actually giving them hope. You know, we're giving doctors and 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 people, a, you know, hope that they can cure these chronic diseases instead of just saying, "Well, you've got type two diabetes, dear. You know, I'm terribly sorry. You've got that for the rest of life. You know, I'll just give you some tablets that might help you a little bit." You know, here's a way of actually reversing that. You know, and, and so you're giving doctors hope. 
So I, I get a great response when I get the chance to talk to, uh, to doctors, but unfortunately I don't get to talk to all of them. Yeah, I mean, your friend, uh, Dr. David Unwin, said that, you know, he almost quit being a GP because he was seeing so many people with diabetes. And before he knew the answer, he just, he just everything's getting more sad. And you see more people getting more desperate, putting on more weight. Yeah, it, just giving out more, you know, insulin and, uh, and drugs. And he said, you know, he almost quit being a doctor. In fact, in his practice, he stopped seeing anybody with diabetes because he was just getting so depressed. And then... Of course, when he found the answer and the solution, then all of a sudden he enjoyed being a doctor again because now you're, you're helping people rather than just dishing out medicine. And in fact, quite recently, uh, David's been involved with uh, diabetes.co.uk uh, and a figure they've just put out is they've just helped over 50,000 people in the UK, and well, not just the UK, but predominantly the UK, 50,000 people put their diabetes in remission. You know, so look how far because of people like yourself, Tim, David, uh, happy to put your head above the parapet and say, look, I think we all got it wrong as, as GPs. There is another way. You're really helping so many people now. So, uh, you know, a massive thank you from a layman like myself that's not a doctor for people like you that are really standing up and changing things. So thank you very much. No, oh, it's my pleasure. And and you mentioned David Unwin. I mean, I think, you know, he's probably doing more good for health in your country than any other single person. You know, he's a, a wonderful man and and uh, and his program is is, is so exciting. So, uh, you know, we all need to get behind him and, and support him as much as we can because uh, there are lots of people who want to take him down. So, uh, yeah, I admire him enormously. Yeah, no, he's a absolute fabulous along with his wife as well. So, uh Look, Peter, thank you for taking the time. I know we're calling you very late in the evening uh, in Australia. No, that's all right. That's no problems at all. Always happy to chat. Well, thank you very much. And just keep getting that message out. We'll, we'll put some links up uh, to your uh, Half the Sugar campaign. And uh, best of luck with that. And hopefully we'll see you at some conference in the future. Yeah, and I look forward to, uh, to Liverpool winning uh, winning the Premiership and uh, and us retaining the Ashes for many more years. Good night. Oh, well, on that note, on that note, we'll we'll leave you right now. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Thanks. If you enjoyed this podcast, then why not subscribe to the full series so you can hear from all the incredible health professionals we spoke to. Before you go, though, visit Amazon today and pick up your copy of Fat and Furious by Steve Bennett. And as a thank you for being a subscriber, we'll even give you a third off. Simply use the discount code FFPODCAST and you'll get the full story featuring all 23 medical professionals.